My name is Zach Colligan, and I'm possessed by pinball. If you're listening to this, there's a glimmer of hope that I can instill into you the joy and fascination I get from this kinetic wonder. This is the Pinball Tapes. Hello everyone, welcome to my podcast. <laughs> oh, this has been a very, very long time coming. I've thought about it, I've overthought it, I still keep thinking about it, but it's time to actually lay it down. So I'm Zach, I'm talking to you from the beautiful Adelaide Hills in South Australia. Uh, just a little bit on me, I own and run a bar, cafe, event space with my talented wife Naomi, and I've been doing so for over 18 years. And yes, it does have a pinball machine on site. And I'll let you know now, it's called The Jade, my bar, and I won't be shy about mentioning it either. <laughs> so, what are we trying to achieve here? Well, my idea for this podcast is that I'm trying to impart the exciting and singular experience I had with the first game I ever owned. And I continue to have so with each new game that I get. To be honest... You think about these things for such a long time. I do a lot of research. I make sure it's what I want. And when I finally get it home, there's just something about exploring every little nuance of it that just gives me a lot of joy, basically. Look, I listen to a lot of pinball media. There's some really great podcasts out there, and I will be mentioning them all throughout this podcast as well because there's lots of references that I've got from listening to all these great people talking about Amazing things, and yes, by amazing I mean pinball. And I thought I could add to the conversation by focusing on individual games and hopefully imparting the feedback and emotion you get from learning how to play it. Because a major turning point in my pinball journey is the realisation that there is an actual game in front of you. And when I say game, it's really easy to forget when you're randomly flipping at your local pub that there was a team of people behind the scenes who laboured to produce this box of light presented in front of you. It's understandably a real stretch for the casual player to appreciate that there's a specific game here. There's a game designed to be played with objectives in mind and to be achieved in a certain order. Now, pinball's a bit of a classic for that because you can just flap around with the flappers, as people like to call them. I know they are actually called flippers, so please don't write in, and achieve lots of lights and sounds, but when you understand that you can slow the game down, you can actually start controlling it. If you execute it in the correct order, the audio and visual rewards will make you feel like a champion. And my favorite pinball proverb is quite apt here. Yes, I said pinball proverb. So when it comes to pinball, there are no rules. It's all personal. <laughs> Let that hang in the air for a moment. That's the thing that fascinates me about pinball. It's a unique experience. It's just you and the machine. It's a real personal battle where gravity and circumstance play a large part. Good or bad decisions to make or break your game. But a great pinball game, no matter how old it is, gives you emotive feedback, makes you want to attempt the challenges again and again. And it doesn't have to be an easy game. It can be really difficult. I found that there's a certain 
thing that you have to do on these older games that is quite simple to understand, but very difficult to master. A great turn of phrase to sum up this kind of feeling is coined by arguably the greatest player the world has ever seen and becoming the greatest designer the world has ever seen, the great Keith Elwin. He called it kinetic satisfaction. It's the difference between a good game and a great game. And more importantly, when you finally understand that you can control the ball, well, that's a whole different world that opens up in front of you. Obviously, if you're in the pub and you're putting money in and you're just smacking the ball around and letting it go wherever it needs to go, trying your very best to stop it from going down the hole, you've got to realise that some games are designed to be played slow and some games are designed to be what they call flow games where you hit the ball quite quickly. And not every game's the same. That's the thing. That's the thing you've got to remember. But you can control the ball. You can, st- If you need time, you can stop the ball, hold the flipper up, catch a breath, and work out what you need to do. And once you are given the gift of time to appreciate the situation and prepare for the next shot, you start to feel like you're kind of mastering the game. With this first podcast, I'll be talking about a game the mighty cyclone, that only has one ball, so there's no multi-ball. And I'll probably get into the interplay of (laughs) multi-ball, sounding a bit blue, isn't it, Uh, when I talk about future games that have that sort of thing. But essentially, it's like juggling. And that's the fun thing about playing pinball, is when you get to understand the nuances of flipper control, there's a whole world of skills out there. And I'd like to talk about them, but I'm thinking this will probably bore you <laughs> because you don't want to know everything. And I think what I'll do is I'll incorporate any of those ideas when I'm talking about particular games. So I guess I need to speak about, well, I don't need to, but I'm going to, my pinball origin story. I'll keep it nice and short, I promise. I spent my youth playing in bands around the pubs of Adelaide, and I used to seek out pinball machines with my wonderful then-girlfriend, now lovely wife, Naomi. And I remember that magic combination of beer, wedges and pinball. It's still a happy place for me to this day. And there was that magic number of beers that you would have where you would play really well, but then you would have that extra pint and everything would go downhill. So what was my first pinball machine? Well, at the time of this podcast, it would be over eight years ago. I had what I like to call my unusual and somewhat stressful gap year. The first home for our bar, the Jade, then called the Jade Monkey, sadly got in the way of progress and was knocked down. So we had a year-long search for a new space, and in that year, the silver lining, got myself a pinball machine. So it was my lovely wife's idea. She said, why don't you get yourself a pinball machine in lieu of the fact that it would end up in our new premise and make some money, which it did. What was my first machine? Well, my first machine was the big brother to our topic today, the mighty Williams Hurricane. And to obtain this, I'd been through many stages of first pinball concerns. If you want to hear a really good summation of it, spelled out really nicely in Joel Engelberth's Triple Drain Pinball Podcast. I believe Joel's Pinball Podcast was called something different originally. Sorry, mate. But it is about that first pinball. When you realise you can buy your own machine and have it at your home, the obsession begins. Well, it did for me anyway. And you've got this long list of ideals. You think, right, well, I want something. I'll I'll keep it forever. It's got to be good value for money. It's got to have longevity that I won't get sick of because I'm going to have it forever. But then you kind of realize after you've been in the hobby for a while, 
that you don't have to tick all these boxes because the long and the short of it is if you get sick of it, you can sell it. And the good thing about pennies is they actually are pretty good retaining their value. And to date this podcast, with the pandemic going on, toys have gone through the roof as have pinball machines. So at the moment, pinball machines are very expensive to buy, but they retain their value quite well, especially if they're classic games. And sometimes with pennies, they just run their course. Sometimes you get them, play them for a while, that'll be done. And sometimes they kind of stick around for a really long time. I found with my first penny, the Hurricane, which was also circus theme, and it just, yeah, gives me that warm, tingly feeling thinking about it. Uh, I had it for about a year, and that's uh, a reasonable amount of time for me these days. I mean, I haven't moved on my machines all my machines that quick, but I have been getting into the habit. Lately, I've been buying machines, cleaning them, stripping them, putting them back together, and then selling them again. And so I get to play with them for a while, and then I maybe move them on, depending on what they are. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about the mighty Williams System 11 Cyclone. Whew. Beautiful, beautiful game. Now, if you're not driving or doing something otherwise with your hands... None of my business. There's a great website called the International Pinball Database, or the IPDB. Now, the IPDB has got pretty much every machine you can think of. It's got a little bit of information on it. It's got a whole lot of photos. Usually there's a manual, depending on what brands it is. Uh, Gottlieb, for example, have uh, got no manuals, and you have to buy them because some guy bought all the rights, but that's another story. So I'd go to IPDB Williams Cyclone, and dial up the picture because when I'm talking about the play field, etc., it's probably good to have a reference point if you want to get that interactive. And if not, I'll try and paint a word picture. So to clarify what we're talking about today, I said it was the Williams System 11 Cyclone. So Williams is the brand uh, and there's... <laughs> There's a lot of sad stories about Pimble dying in the 90s, the end of the 90s from memory, and Williams was one of the casualties, an amazing company that made some just stunning games. And when I say System 11, System 11 is the board set. At a certain era in the 90s, the System 11s came along from January in 1986 to January in 1990. They made 30 System 11s, so that was the board set used, and there's 16 System 11Bs. And that is obviously a board set slightly amended with different features. And look, I'm not going to go into the technical details. If you want to hear all the technical details, the Silver Ball Chronicles with David Dennis and Ron Hallett. Ron's also on the Slam Tilt podcast. Excellent technical knowledge of that. So they had this amazing stretch of games where they capture fun, and I think that's what it boils down to with, with Williams games. The Adams Family, which you may have heard of if you're not into pinball at all, was the biggest selling one ever. I think there's some conjecture about earlier ones, but I think that's still the case. It's a very famous one. Also, the rules aren't too deep. I mean, to be honest, I have my mates come over and play the games that I've got, and I don't have any of the brand new spankly ones. And they think, whoa, there's so much going on with this game. It's too complicated. So it's a little bit relative. But if you walk up to one of these brand new games, which they're bringing out today, which are arguably sometimes a bit easy to understand because they flash you in the kind of right direction. But those rule sets are deep. So these ones are quite easy to figure out, but just really fun. They just had this sense of fun and 
there was something about achieving what you were supposed to. And even though after owning these games, you can usually reach most of the things that you have to. Usually, sometimes there's um, little outlying rules and clever little twists and that that are very difficult to get that you may never get to. But generally, you can achieve most of the things, but you just want to achieve them again. So who designed this game? The legendary Barry Owsler. He's designed what would be considered absolute classics. Apparently, he was a really lovely bloke too, and everyone got along really well with him. If you want to know more about Barry, refer to the Silverball Chronicles, which is the excellent historical podcast, and everything you want to know about the history of pinball is actually in there. Episode 15, they chat all about it. They do a whole history of all the different things regarding Barry Owsler and all the wonderful things he did. My aim is to have one of each of the designers that I kind of like, at the very least, or maybe the classic one. I tend to be drawn to the more off-the-radar ones. There is a financial thing to keep in mind because all the classics, like if you want to buy an Adams family, whoo-wee, you'll be paying a lot of money for that. And I, to be honest, I feel like I've kind of played that anyway because I played it a lot. That was around when I was growing up playing pinball in pubs. Now, I want to make it clear that with this hopefully series of podcasts I'd like to do. I'm not claiming that these are the best games ever made. I just want to impart the feeling that I get from them and there's something about them. And the interesting thing about the Cyclone and the reason that I actively sought a Cyclone and kind of dropped into my lap, I bought it off someone who had it in a shed for a long time and it needed a fair bit of love um, quite a lot of love. The reason I'd heard about it is it's actually part of a trilogy and it's rated the best of the trilogy. Now, of course, my first game I've owned was the Hurricane. The Hurricane was the third in the trilogy. So there was the Comet, which was in 1985. And now, whoa, I'm going to get in trouble. I think it was the first game to, to have a million point shot. <laughs> but don't quote me on that. And don't, uh, I'll get my act together and put together an email or something. Maybe don't write in and get angry at me, but correct me, please do. And I think it was. The Comet was in 1985. And the Mighty Cyclone, which I haven't said yet, of course, came out in February the 24th, 1988. And then The Hurricane, which was the third in the trilogy, was 1991. All carnival-themed and named after um, rides. So these are all actual roller coasters rather than being catastrophic events. Just out of interest, the Cyclone sold 9,408 units. Oh gosh, designers these days, companies would kill to uh, sell that many. So that's quite staggering, really. So the wonderful Barry Owsler. What other games did the man do? Some of his great, well-known games are Bram Stoker's Dracula, based on the film, which I thought was fine from memory. It has this incredible multi-ball feature where a ball literally just cruises across the playfield, and it's all based on this magnet system. It's quite incredible. He also designed a game called Gorgar, which was the first game with speech, and it's very basic stuff. You know, me, Gorgar, you, bad, I don't know, things like that. One of them I've never played, unfortunately, but I've got on my list 
one day to get. And Doctor Who, based obviously on the science fiction show, he actually designed the mechanism in that game and patented that one. It's an amazing mechanism that rises up. It's got three levels, essentially. As you progress through the game, it rises up and then it rises up again. Uh, I actually had a good thrash of a Doctor Who quite recently, and that's just, it's an incredible game. And, of course, the very famous Space Shuttle. The episode of Super Bowl Chronicles talks about how Barry Owsler, back when Pinball was dying, brought out Space Shuttle and gave the industry a shot in the arm and arguably saved Pinball, which is a beautiful thought. Now, in regards to the Cyclone... Barry had a point of difference with his approach. He wanted a family-friendly thing, as opposed to the macho themes that were popular at the time. It's a really interesting point of difference because there was a lot about firing this and blowing up that and battling this. And it reminds me a bit of the idea of Pac-Man. There was a lot of shooting games, and when Pac-Man came out, it was definitely more family-friendly. And so this is what Barry was going for with his pinball machine, because he wanted everyone to play it. He wanted children, he wanted men and women to play it, and I think that's a wonderful thing. So let's talk about the art. The interesting thing about this game is the artist is a fascinating character, unfortunately isn't with us anymore. And again, if you want to learn more about the amazing Python Angelo, that's right, Python Angelo, great name, The Silver Ball Chronicles Episode 4, by David Dennis and Ron Hallett, is incredibly entertaining and wonderful. He was such a character. He was born in Transylvania, Romania, and he famously disappeared for weeks on end uh, during a project and come back in the final stages with these crazy stories like he was working with National Geographic on safari and he drove upper management absolutely nuts, but he'd always come back in and knuckle down and absolutely get it done. He primarily worked at Disney, but he took a 50% pay cut to move to Williams to make video games because he believed there was more potential on working video games than traditional animation. One of his famous games is Joust, um, which is that great arcade game where you're essentially on like, kind of like emus, maybe the ostriches, and you're sitting on the back. He designed the wing flapping motion on that. I mean, hell, it's a jousting on a giant bird game. (laughs) What more could you want? I have a arcade cabinet and I used to have another one that had this game that I loved and I didn't know it was Python Angelo designed for a long time. It's called Bubbles <laughs> and literally you're a bubble in a sink and as you go around the sink you collect things and you get bigger and bigger and it's got a smiley face on it and it gets like psychedelically <laughs> bigger and crazier looking. It's got this crazy look on it and you've got to dodge razor blades and ants in the sink. And I remember reading about the game somewhere and someone said, what kind of a filthy blighter leaves all this stuff in the sink? But again, Silver Ball Chronicles is where it is. So with pinball art, the first thing that catches your eye is obviously what in this case is called the translight. So there's back glasses or translights. And essentially, as far as I know, the only difference is that translights are usually made out of perspex or some kind of acrylic. And back glasses are just that. They're made out of glass. Now, I really like this translight. It's got excellent framing as far as art goes, in my opinion. And it's got a great sense of movement and atmosphere. So to sum up... The cyclone roller coaster smashes through the name, rendering it in twain as it spirals towards us at breakneck speed. On a rooftop, a clown, with a duck on his foot for good measure, gleefully points at the multicoloured mystery Ferris wheel, poised to announce your prize, while nearby, the jackpot tower flashes in readiness for the skillful player to achieve. 
a gathered throng of punters party below. All the while, fireworks explode in the sky. More rudimentary too, but pleasing nonetheless, is the name of the company. It is basically an actual sign that our mystery wheel clown casually leans on, highlighting the Williams logo and accompanied by the phrase, Williams Pimble Amusement Park Extravaganza. <sighs> Everywhere I want to be. Hilariously, though, the front two passengers on the roller coaster are Nancy and Ronald Reagan. <laughs> I find this stuff great. This is Python's era of political statements, and it's complete with Nancy wearing a Say No to Drugs t-shirt. This is Reagan's zero-tolerance drug policy being called out here, and Ron himself is carrying a dog for some reason, and the dog covers his eyes, and Ron looks very terrified. <laughs> That's one of the first things I think you notice about this back glass. It's not the main feature, but it's very clear who it is. Now, the best feature on here is what's called an animated back glass, or I guess technically would be an animated trans light. So mounted behind this trans light is actually a wheel that spins around. And the trans light itself obviously has a circular clear window. It actually spins around when you get a certain feature of the game, and it'll be a random prize. Now let's talk about the actual play field. They talk about theme integration with pinball machines. And obviously, as that phrase suggests, it's how well it's all pulled together to create the game as a whole. I mean, hell, it's an actual carnival. So you are literally looking down onto a carnival and you are looking at the tops of everyone's heads. It's a beautiful play field drawn with that in mind. And there are hundreds of people there. What I like is that some people are actually looking up at you and they're all slightly different, which is quite staggering. Look, I guess maybe if I look close enough, he may have cut and pasted some, but I don't think so. So you're looking down onto the carnival and everyone's milling about, doing their thing, they're eating and drinking and going on rides, etc., etc. And you'll see everything from aliens to robots, even coneheads. <laughs> Does everyone remember that phase of US comedy? No, neither do I. <laughs> Now, before I talk about the spook house, I should probably explain about playfield plastics. I mean, it seems fairly obvious, but what they actually are, they're usually screen printed, irregular shaped plastics that sit on top of a few metal posts. And they usually hide the more rudimentary sections of the playfield stuff they don't want you to see, like globe sockets and things like that. Now, the spook house plastic of Dracula is an absolute classic. <laughs> He's a green and orange cloaked classic Nosferatu looking dude. His bony fingers point down towards the spook house entrance. The great little detail of this playfield plastic is that the eyes are clear and so the glow from the bulb underneath makes his eyes glow. Now I can't talk about the cyclone without talking about the flipper clown down the bottom. Right down the bottom between the flippers is a clown face. Now I don't find him creepy I think some people do. I find him quite appealing. He's a little manic, perhaps, let's say. He's got crazy orange hair and a yellow clown suit with blue stars, which sounds fun, right? And the neat feature of this clown, it's smack bang right there in your face between the flippers, is it's got alternating and flashing eyes when double scoring is achieved. So you know when you're in the right spot in this game and when you're achieving something great, because the clown's eyes are flashing. And that sounds creepy, doesn't it? But it's not. It's kind of cool. 
Okay, well, let's talk about the sound design, something I'm really quite fascinated in. And the interesting thing about what I'm hoping will be uh, a series of a few games is some of the games, the sound is so basic, there won't even be a section worth mentioning. But on the Cyclone, and around about this era and obviously in the 80s, there were some great games that came out with some amazing sound. Now, the sound designer on this game is the legendary Chris Granner. And if you want to know more about Chris Granner, please head over to the wonderful Head to Head Pinball Podcast, who unfortunately only do an episode once a year, if that these days, the Great Australian Podcast, and their episode 71 with Chris Granner is just brilliant. He's a bit of a musical genius, really. It's quite fascinating to hear him talk about all the other games and just his methodology, etc., etc. So you head over there. Chris done the sound. I actually own one of his other games called The Whirlwind, which is not a carnival-themed ride. It's actually based on the natural disaster, and I'll talk about that at some stage. He has also done some absolute classic games where he's done the musical score. There's another game called Taxi and, of course, Terminator 2, which I'm sure you've all heard of the film, was an absolute classic game. I'm not that familiar with the sound for those games, but when I get hold of them, I'm sure I'll tell you all about it. And I want to start off with an apology to everybody, and especially the great Chris Grandner, if he ever listens. The quality of the sound of the pinball music that I've represented here is not the best. I've got limited equipment and uh, knowledge about recording directly from the feed in the pinball machine. There's not an obvious way to do it. And I just want to stress that if you're standing in front of the machine, the sound is heaps better than the kind of thin, distorted-esque sound we've got here. Like some of the sounds are actually a little bit distorted, to be fair, but it would sound a lot better if I had a direct feed, which I unfortunately don't. And I guess I should mention how sound is produced on these pinball machines. Well, on the Cyclone, it has, um, it's very similar to a lot of pinball machines that came out with a stereo sound. It's got two stereo speakers located at the bottom of the back box, so pretty much directly facing you across the playfield. And it's also got a sub pointed through a grill in the bottom of the cabinet, which points at the ground. So you've got that kind of blend. And yeah, altogether it sounds they sound pretty great. And obviously the more modern ones have got these incredible sound systems in them. And as an aside too, you can really easily beef up your sound by adding a sub. I want to give a shout out to a great website called Tangles Tech. It's an Australian website that makes a whole lot of circuit boards and things like that. And they're all custom made. And there's a part that I bought which was brilliant. It's a sub adapter. And all it is, it's a very simple little thing, which was quite cheap. It's got a couple of crocodile clips. You literally clip onto the speaker itself, uh, the sub speaker inside the cabinet, and you run a cable through and you can plug that directly into a sub. And I've got that set up on my whirlwind at the moment. And it makes a huge difference to the sound. And I've got a pretty rubbish sub plugged into it. But it sounds great. Before we delve into it, I should uh, throw in a bit of pop culture music trivia. Sound bites from the Cyclone were actually used in the song Carousel by Mike Patton's band Mr. Bungle. Mike Patton was from Faith No More and many other projects. So yes, yeah, so it's actually even achieved some sort of semi-pop culture status. So let's talk about the musical compositions in this game. There are six main pieces. We have the main theme, the spook house theme, the double theme, which is what do you want to get, the jackpot theme, the million theme, and the high score theme. There's also a couple of other little tunes that we can uh, talk about as well. 
So the main theme, it's a very odd and quirky little number. I remember really being taken by how odd it was when I first plugged in the machine. I don't tend to do a lot of looking at gameplay. I like to kind of leave that experience to when I turn it on, figure it all out. And this one, yeah, really took me by surprise. It was a very odd little number and it's got a classic Oompa, Oompa tuba with a little circus ditty in the background and a very odd xylophone melody along with it. It actually sets the tone really nicely for a day of delight at the carnival. <laughs> so very themed. Now we have also the Spook House theme. And this is a great bassy number. It's got a lot more sub-action than the main theme. You can really hear the, the lower end with this one when you compare them directly. We basically have dueling synth sounds of a tuba and maybe a clarinet. Really sets the tone for this one, being the spook house, is the sound of the marimba and all the trills. It's perfect for the spook house vibe because it brings to my mind the dancing skeletons. Like you're playing a song on a fleshless ribcage. Spooky old stuff. The double theme. Now the double theme is when you get double scoring, which is a big part of the game. And this one it is a splendid, upbeat, joyous circus theme number. To me, it really does sound like something exciting is going down. And when it's playing, you really feel that. And it's given its appropriate moving musical accompaniment. I'm only really familiar with two Chris Grano machines, the Whirlwind being the other one, but the incredibly busy nature of the melody in this song seems to be one of his trademarks. I actually make music myself, but I have never used this many notes in the melody in all my life. I love it. The movement of the melody befits the movement of a pinball machine, full of high octane action. So the jackpot theme. It's an incredibly high stress number, and it's filled with wobbly sounds that quickly and severely ramp up in intensity. You are really meant to feel the pressure with this one. When the jackpot is lit and ready to achieve on Cyclone, you have little to no time to achieve it. Barely notice anything except the task at hand. Having the luxury to listen to this on its own was quite interesting. As I wrote the description, I sat with the machine and had the tune playing, and the high octane end of the track loops as it gets to the end, so it's quite unsettling to sit there with that going for any length of time. I don't think I'll ever recover. I actually did this with all the music as I wanted to get a real feel of the vibe. The idea of the jackpot thing makes you second guess your ability to calmly hit the cyclone ramp that final time. It wants you to feel it, it wants you to mess up and only the best players find a way of tuning all this stuff out to calmly achieve the goal. One of the smaller things, the million thing, is another high-stress percussive number, and to me, it's very reminiscent of a ticking clock or time bomb. We have a very distinct array of instruments and bendy noises that ramp up to a spiralling cacophony. Just like the Cyclone's million shot, has a reward you so desperately want, but won't let you take it without a fight, and may not even give it up again. Now, the high-score thing. I would say this is the most complete and most composed number in the game. It should be, because this delightful number is only played at the conclusion of the game if you achieve a high score. Chris threw everything at this one and made it so you know you've done something special. An oral reward, if you will. It again has Chris's trademark movement throughout the piece and seems to utilise most, if not all, of the previous synth instruments from the other works that you all hear when you play the game. My fave part of this one is when you actually achieve this during gameplay, 
and it happens at the end of your game. The theme is punctuated with the carnival barker's call-outs and ends with the dreaded elephant trumpet. You just have to stay and listen till the very end. That's how it finishes. I love little rewards like that. Only from having a singular experience with a machine at home, when you can hear all the call-outs really clearly, are you enlightened to that level of detail. Some would say, not necessary detail, but not me. Only if you let the music play out before pressing play again, or moving on with your life will you notice these things. Next time you chase a silver ball, give it a try. So some of the more minor compositions are things like the Ferris wheel tune, which is an excellent toy that we'll discuss later. It's a slight deviation from the earlier tunes, but in the same oompa oompa like vibe with a runaway melody. And you know you're on the Ferris wheel because the lights flash right in your face. The bonus multiplier tune. Now this is great. It's very worth mentioning because it's extremely difficult to get and the little hidden gem is the great tune that accompanies it. Basically, the bonus in the Cyclone, and in many if not all machines, is a score that is quietly built up in the background from doing things throughout the game. And obviously then, the bonus multiplier is a multiple of this that you can earn by achieving something in the game. In the Cyclone, to achieve this, you have to light and hit the boomerang hole which is a very, very difficult shot at the bottom far left of the playfield, just above the left outlanes. The thing that makes it so very tough is that a direct shot won't work. You have to bounce it off a nearby rubber to nail it. It's actually a hole too that it falls into. The bonus multiplier starts at two times. So each time you get a shot in the boomerang, it increases by one. And after your ball drains, it multiplies your bonus score accompanied by a high-pitched note. If you achieve the maximum seven times bonus multiplier, which is no mean feat, the intensity and frequency of the sound gets higher, and upon completion also plays a neat tune and flashes the score in celebration. Very satisfying indeed. So now we can talk about the call-outs. There's nothing I like better than listening to old audio. They're perfectly fitting and beautifully inserted in this game. And although it's an obvious concept, I love the idea of someone in the studio doing all these call-outs. It always cracks me up. You know, when you play video games and all that, you often forget that sometimes it's someone actually in a studio saying all these things. In his head-to-head interview, as I said before, the episode 71 of the Head-to-Head Pinball podcast, Chris fondly recounts the memories of writing and creating these scripts with the famous pinball designer Mark Ritchie. It's funny because of all the games he did, when they were talking about call-outs, this one particularly came to mind during his interview. He said it all just fell into place and turned out really well. Mark Ritchie, his fellow designer, actually voiced the Carnival Barker. And my favourite is, hey, you with the face. <laughs> hey, you with the face. And when you get nothing for the mystery wheel spin, it says, you pays your money, you takes your chances. And I love stuff like that. And probably the most funny call out in the game is the excellent Count Dracula voice. When you try your luck on the mystery wheel and it times out, you get the emphatic blur. Apparently, (laughs) apparently Chris and Mark, when designing this game, used to walk into each other's office to freak each other out and go blur, (laughs) which I think is so great. And just recently on a Silver Ball Chronicles episode, David Dennis and Ron Hallett were cracking up about, I think it must be the same call-out in the game Monster Bash. 
they were saying when you get Dracula in that game, when you hit the Dracula target or whatever, he goes, blur. And they, they were saying it was one of the funniest call-outs in pinball. And I totally agree. And I'm wondering if it was another sound that was used in a couple of different games. Either way, you can hear it in the takes. It sounds like Mark was having such a great time doing it all. Hurry, hurry. Step right up. Okay, so let's talk about the game in general. What I love about pinball it's that it's a game of split-second decisions where a millimetre in the wrong direction makes a mile of difference. It's miniaturised chaos. The same goes for many machines, but especially the Cyclone. It's about pulling it all together and executing the right shot at the right time. The eternal lament of the pinball player is that all your achievements can be lined up. All you need to do is cash in, but you drain, no! In a good game, however, you just want to try and do it again and again and again and again. So I've titled this section, The Cyclone Rule Set Kinetic Framework. This is the meat or halloumi of the sandwich with a deep discussion of the important physical aspects of the cyclone, plus a deep dive into the rules and kinetic activity of this fine machine. Regarding the gameplay in general, a very important feature and design choice that needs to be addressed in the cyclone is the presence of the center post, and as the name suggests, this post with a rubber on it is located smack bang in the middle of the flippers, slightly below where the tips come to rest. A middle post, while not rare, adds a definitive element to gameplay. On paper, it sounds like it would make things a lot easier, but I find the lure of saving the ball with a post is a bit of a trap. It can, however, save the ball in an extremely satisfactory way, but you need to be totally sure it's coming dead on for it to help and not hinder. I should also mention that the Cyclone is a single ball game, which is actually quite unusual for its time. Multi-ball was all the rage, and the most popular games had the option of playing two or three balls at once. You definitely don't need more than one ball in this game though. The stress and thrill of only having one ball to deal with gives the game a distinct edge. Relatively speaking, it's actually quite a low scoring game. To put it in perspective, a score of 10 million actually clocks the scoring and essentially rolls it back to eight zeros. Don't get the idea though, this is easily done. Millions are hard won on the Cyclone. It's kind of fun in that respect, because if you achieve this, which I have a few times, you literally have to write down your score somewhere. <laughs> because the software really isn't designed to go past 9,999,999, it will give you the points during the game, but your high score will literally be that, 9,999,999. And just as an aside, I do actually have a chalk leaderboard with a selection of games in my car hole. I don't have all the games I have access to, just a selection. The reason for this is I have an arcade cabinet with classic games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, and I've noticed some of the games didn't retain your high score. So I got on the arcade forum to ask somebody, I said, oh, so what do I do? Can I fix this? And I got a fairly acerbic response, to be fair, saying, oh, the games don't cost very much. So why are you complaining? I was like, I'm not complaining. I'm just asking for help. And basically this dude said, oh, you should get a chalkboard and write it down. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But I ended up doing it anyway. So back to the cyclone. The general vibe of this game being a single ball game, is that there is little to no room for late shots or flailing about. I should say in regards to flipping a lot and achieving nothing, that my lovely wife brought the term furkling into my life. It's my fave term when you have lots of ball time, but you're achieving nothing. <laughs> so in the cyclone, every feature you light and 
most things you have to achieve time out surprisingly quickly. There is no reprieve for a late switch hit. On some games, there is a bit of leeway regarding when you can achieve a certain shot. The glaring light or call out might be finished, but you can sneak it in at the last second. Not on the cyclone though. If you're a split second late, you get diddly squat. One of the reasons I was quite keen to get my hands on a cyclone was because out of the trilogy, this one was considered the best. From listening to pinball media, it seems that the cyclone is rated the highest because it works well in tournaments. Yes, I said competitions. Just in case you weren't aware, there's a highly competitive pinball circuit out there. The reasonably short ball times and almost unexploitable nature of the cyclone makes it perfect for high-paced action. Also, I should mention that the cyclone is a solid-state game with an alphanumeric display. Solid-state pinball machines are games that essentially have a digital display as opposed to earlier electromechanical ones that utilise score reels and the following eras of dot matrix screens featuring animations made of dots, and of course, today's use of LED screens. Alphanumeric displays were an improvement on the original 17th digital ones that only had the ability to display the score. I'm a big fan of alphanumeric displays, as they had to get quite inventive to animate features with very limited technology. The cyclone has some quaint little moments like balloons flying through the air, a roller coaster cart that careens across the scoreboard at the plunge, and scores that fly around and quack like ducks. <laughs> Very neat indeed. So let's begin at the beginning. Where do you start? With the plunge, of course. This is where the vibe of the game begins. The plunger is basically a spring-loaded rod that, if careful, can be controlled. Controlled plunging has a long history. On most games, if not all, there's a gauge on the plunger where you can measure how far the plunger tip is pulled back. This gives you an outside chance to repeatedly put the ball into the game where you really want it to go. However, this is easier said than done, as it also depends on how you let go of the plunger. In some games though, this will give you quite a large scoring advantage and can be very important. In his head-to-head -head pinball podcast interview, the great Keith Irwin, who I mentioned earlier, Mr. Kinetic Satisfaction, apparently has a whole bunch of pics on his phone with his thumb near pinball gauges. <laughs> I don't quite understand how he used his thumb exactly as a reminder of where to plunge the ball, but he is a great player, so it's worth paying attention. There is also a very famous story about the great player, designer and general pinball ambassador, Mr. Roger Sharp, saving pinball. I won't go into great detail here, as it's been well documented, but he basically had to play pinball in an American court of law to decriminalise it when it was made illegal and seen as gambling. A story definitely worth looking to, and apparently there's a movie coming out. I'd heard it was a particular shot that got it over the line, but in an interview, Roger recounted there was actually a controlled plunge that got their attention. So if your controlled plunge is done correctly, the unique scoring opportunity you can achieve is often called the skill shot. This is essentially a target or switch or something similar that needs to be hit before any other switches to receive a bonus score. So in the case of the Mighty Cyclone, it's a series of holes in a line in the plunger lane in a sweet raised plastic housing that have different point value. The biggest point is 100,000 points and when achieved is accompanied by the great call out we have a winner. Seconds into the game, and you're already a winner. We have a winner! The awesome thing about this is that it will give you points multiplied by the ball you are on. 
you usually have the option to change how many balls you get per game in most pinball machines, either three or five. But being a 90s boy, I feel that for this era, three balls is the norm. So on your third ball, you can achieve 300,000 points. But if extra balls are achieved, it can be 400 or even 500,000 points. This is all very worthwhile attempting on the Cyclone because millions are hard won. Now onto the ramps, the main feature of the Cyclone. I mean, they are the roller coasters. So again, excellent theme integration. They're plastic vac form ramps, which are super smooth and give great visual feedback. There are two on the Cyclone, and mine are particularly nice, as I bought brand new ones when I refurbished this beautiful old machine. They have a distinct wiggle to them, which has pleased some of my pals immensely. Something I learnt from buying brand new clear ramps, or even just giving them a good clean, is that you can see through them as the designer intended. It can really make a difference to the game, having an additional clear view of the playfield, or perhaps even something underneath that affects gameplay. So the middle ramp is called the Comet. This is named after a Coney Island ride, and I believe all the ramps in this series of pinball machines are. It's also obviously the name of the first of the three. So we have the Comet, the Cyclone, and the Hurricane. It's a real challenge, this one, and it's just off-centre enough to make it difficult for repetitive shots. And repetitive shots are the key to success. The good thing is that it can't be exploited by making 50 ramps. It has finite loops of scoring which I find quite brilliant. I'm sure people find that quite frustrating, but we'll discuss that later. It has the tightest and most satisfying wiggly return and drops the ball back onto the right flipper. To clarify, the Comet is technically only a circular ramp that loops in a wide circle to the right, but it drops onto the latter part of the Cyclone ramp and utilizes the wiggly nature of the final stretch. It's a very clever design idea, making three ramps out of two and a half. Well played, Mr. Rousler. Also, if you don't quite nail it and make it all the way around the loop, it drops you behind the spook house and straight into the pop bumpers. Now, what are pop bumpers? To quickly explain pop bumpers, or jets, as wheels call them, they are basically large, thick, mushroom-esque shaped posts that repel the ball when it comes into contact. I won't go into great detail here, but on the Cyclone, they're in a traditional cluster of three, and as you can imagine, when a ball starts ricocheting within a cluster of three repelling pop bumpers, things can get serious very quickly. The excellent design feature of the Cyclone is that the ball can't come directly down between the flippers because the pop bumpers are hidden up behind the spook house. They can, however, come flying down the left or right side at top speed. The next ramp is called the Cyclone, the game's namesake ramp, a glorious far right shot it's the home of the jackpot, for crying out loud. The ramp itself has a delightfully smooth arc that finally wobbles its way back to the right flipper, and not to the left flipper. So unlike the Comet ramp, it isn't a repeatable shot. That would make it way too easy. The jackpot is an interesting quirk in the rule set, and it's probably the only slightly flawed rule in the game. You see, the jackpot builds up by lighting the one, two, and three lights in the corresponding lanes right up the very back. This achievement will be explained further when we chat about the ultimate combo strategy later on. Each time these lights are lit, it adds an adjustable amount to the jackpot score. The default amount, and I think the lowest amount, being 5,000 points. So you basically get 5,000 points added to the jackpot kitty every time you light one, two, and three. The reward amount is displayed on the translight 
on the sweet jackpot tower, each million has its own colour and flashing globe illuminating it from behind. To win this stash, all you have to do is hit the cyclone ramp three times. Sounds easy, huh? But my wordy, it is not. You first need to light the ramp by hitting the ferris wheel ramp on the far left. Then you have to hit the cyclone three times in a row. And though the ball is returned nicely to the flipper from the ramp's wonderful wiggle, it doesn't come back to the flipper you need. On top of that, the time you have between shots is extremely short, and that time gets even shorter between each ramp shot. All very panic-inducing. <laughs> if you manage all of that, the jackpot jingle and accompanying light show strobes and flashes in a way where you know you are Jack, the pot master. <laughs> the jackpot amount maxes out at 4 million, but considering the game itself maxes out at 10 million, that is huge. This is, however, where the rule set can be a bit uneven. If you're playing with a group of friends who aren't aware, don't care, or simply aren't skilled enough to cash it in, all you have to do is sit back, wait for it to build up and steal it. <laughs> it could be the same in tournament play as well, and you would have a very large advantage if you were the only one who knew how to do this. In tournament play, however, they often employ tactics to make sure games are fairly balanced, so this feature may even be switched off if it's possible to do that. And yes, in case you weren't aware, you can change nearly every feature on a pinball machine, especially if the game has an adjustment menu. For the record, when I play the game and have achieved my high scores, I keep an eye on it and cash it in when it gets to around 1 to 2 million on a single game. If you treat the game like the jackpot is going to reset between games, then you can honestly achieve what I would consider a real score. That's the thing about owning your own game. You can do all manner of sneaky things to get a high score, but in the end, you're only cheating yourself. So the Ferris wheel. Oh, this is a superb mech in the game that does exactly what you want it to do. As soon as you press play, this little wheel starts slowly rotating and continues until the last ball is drunk. The entrance for the ferris wheel is right up the back left of the playfield via a tunnel of smooth curved metal walls. I originally thought it wasn't a particularly smooth shot, but it actually is if you can hit it just right. It's not a super hard shot, but not particularly easy either and can be achieved from both flippers. It's an incredibly solid mech that reliably sends the ball around in just the right amount of time. They actually put two of these back to back in the follow-up machine, the Hurricane. <laughs> and people often complained that it slowed the game too much. I remember my pals and I loved it, as it gave you a chance to have a swig of your favourite beverage. The Ferris wheel's exit point is another great ramp running down the left-hand side of the playfield and is the king of wiggliness. I've been saying wiggly more times than I've ever said before during this episode. It actually slows the ball a fair bit with its tight winding corners and delivers it to the left flipper perfectly. This ramp always impresses when friends drop over. The Spook House. I mean, because you're at a fun fair, obviously there's a Spook House. This feature is a foul temptress. It is basically a hole that goes all the way through the playfield and drops the ball into what's known as a subway. A subway is essentially a plastic tunnel underneath the surface that sends the ball to a different area of the playfield where it is upkicked back onto the surface. You light the Spook House by hitting down a ghost drop target which guards the entrance. A drop target is one of the best features you can have on a pinball, in my opinion. Like the name suggests, it is a rectangular shaped target, or can be different shapes, that literally drops into the playfield when struck with the ball. The Spook House then plays its own song and grabs all your attention. It is, however, a bit of a trap because it is a very dangerous shot indeed. 
Its close proximity to the flippers primarily make it really dangerous. It's also flanked by two posts with rubbers on them that if hit will send the ball hurtling towards danger just offset the centre post into the drain. As mentioned earlier, when achieved, the back glass or translite mystery wheel spins around giving you a random reward. The points awarded are not really worth the risk, but if you achieve the extra ball, then you're risked it all and succeeded. Just an aside here, in case you aren't sure what I mean by in-lane, on either side of the flipper there are two lanes. The closest one to the flippers, that actually roll the ball back to the flippers, are called in-lanes. The ones situated far left and right that drain the ball are called the out-lanes. So what's the strategy with this game? Well, I never thought you'd ask. So we've talked about most of the main and separate elements of the game, but let's now get the feels by talking about what I think is the best combination. They often talk about games that have the thing, that one thing you can do over and over and over again to achieve big points. The trouble with this being present on a machine, it can end up ignoring all the other features of the game, no matter how fun they are. If you are chasing points in a competition though, this knowledge gives you a distinct tactical advantage. The great thing about the Cyclone is that it doesn't really have an exploit and the ultimate combination of features is quite difficult to achieve. This keeps you coming back for more. So what do we do? For starters, we want to make sure the Comet ramp is lit. This is what we want to hit over and over again to reap the rewards of double scoring. So as I mentioned, that's the ramp in the middle of the playfield. When you start the game, on the setting I have, the Comet ramp will be lit for a 40,000 point shot. After you hit the ramp, it starts flashing and gives you a small amount of time to hit it again, each time increasing the value by 20,000. If you hit the ramp once, and you don't make it up there again before it times out, it will remain lit. However, if you hit the ramp twice and it times out, you'll have to relight it. To relight this wiggly wonder, you'll need to hit all three stand-up ball toss cat targets on the mid-left-hand side of the playfield. As I mentioned earlier, each target is accompanied by a very surprise-sounding meow. For the discerning player, there is also a sneaky target located just to the right of the spook house that will light a cat each time it's hit. This is a difficult shot, but is far safer than some of the cat targets. So we have the Comet lit. Then we want to activate double scoring, a super fun and stressful mode. For the record, the double scoring round will only double the points you achieve on the Comet ramp and the Ferris wheel. It won't double your jackpot on the Cyclone ramp, which is fair enough as an 8 million jackpot in this game is way too generous. To activate double scoring, you need to light the three insert lights associated with the three lanes up the back. The insert lights are labelled 1, 2 and 3 respectively, and can be moved left or right with the flipper buttons. Each lane has a switch that is activated when the ball rolls over it, and hopefully lights up an insert. You basically want to move the illuminated lights out of the way of the path of the ball, and put the unlit ones in the way. This is another really awesome and common feature of pinball machines, but the lights differ in the way they can be controlled. Plunging the ball always puts you near these lanes, and the memory of which light you lit is retained between the balls. You can also shoot the ball back up there, so you can plug away to get all three of the lights lit. You need to pick the gap between the spook house and the cyclone ramp. When you're up there, you can also accidentally achieve some lights via the pop bumpers. They are located directly below and often ricochet the ball backwards up through the lanes. Sometimes fate is very kind. 
A tactical idea here is to move any lights away from the middle or number two lane when the pop bumpers are going nuts. There is a higher chance of the ball coming back up through this lane. Again, as all cyclone features, these one, two and three lanes have a feather touch and one shot switch recognition. The ball may have just barely entered the lit lane as you attempt to deftly move the illuminated number out of the way, but no, it will not register again, not even a millisecond of grace. Just as an aside, when this particular event happens, the player is given a distinct whistle. This whistle is the same sound bite from the classic William Games Whitewater, involving a Yeti, but I digress. So now you've lit all three lanes, let the games begin. Double scoring begins at this point, with the appropriately stress-inducing music, and you have oh, seconds to capitalise on it. I'm not sure exactly, but it feels like none. To further alert the player that something good is happening, the eyes of our slightly manic clown near the flippers flash and alternate. Now you have to take a deep breath and confidently loop the comet ramp. As I mentioned, each shot increases incrementally by 20,000, starting at 40,000 points. The aim here is to achieve the million point shot. To do this, you need to hit the ramp five times while the shot timer gets shorter on each loop. After four successful loops, you are set up for the million point shot. But the cyclone won't let you take this prize easily. The lights strobe, the whole playfield dims, and the million shot music ramps up with increasing intensity. Again, you have little to no time for error. One miss hit and you'll lose the glory. But if you are successful, a trumpeting fanfare awaits. Also, if you've been following the plan and achieve this during double scoring, you get a sweet 2 million, which is a huge score on that cyclone. And damn if it doesn't make you smile. This is where our game takes an interesting turn. After you cash in the million shot, the ramp is essentially rendered useless which in my limited experience is a very unique rule indeed. Most games I've ever played reward you for hitting a ramp over and over and over again, but not the Cyclone. Once you've earned your million, the message is clear. It's time to move to other parts of the machine or start the process all over again. It may sound simple and even mundane, but man, nailing that final shot really gives you kinetic satisfaction. At this point, there are a few things you can do. The most sensible course of action is to hit the ferris wheel directly after the million shot. You get double the value of the ferris wheel if double scoring still lit and can prove to be very worthwhile. However, I've discovered a delightful quirk of the cyclone that I've tagged the bragging rights shot. This shot doesn't earn you any points, only the illusion of points. I'm being cryptic, I know, but I love stuff like this. When you fully imbue yourself into a game, you learn that it's not always about points. Moments are equally as important. There is an odd moment and more of a minor bug, but it really appeals to me. When you've hit the million or two million shot, the fanfare sounds and the lights continue to strobe. It is very difficult to focus and keep your composure at this point, but if you hit the ramp again, so a sixth time, the millions distinctly flash again, but you get nothing. <laughs> this cracks me up. The only reason to go for this shot is to reaffirm for yourself and for anyone present that you did indeed just achieve the million shot. Pure bragging rights. There is also a psychological battle going on here. You know it doesn't give you points and it's hard to pull off, so you have to commit to getting it despite the lack of points involved 
and the danger of draining the ball. So this is where we end up with the Cyclone and this podcast in general. This exact idea is a space where the pinball-obsessed inhabit, a space where it's more than an exercise in building points, it's an experience. You reach a point where you can marvel at the beauty of even a simple game's framework and give in to the experience of battling to keep that silver ball rolling. When it comes to pinball, there are no rules, it's all personal. I just want to add an important dedication at the end here. Our feature designer for this first episode of the Pinball Tapes, the illustrious Barry Ausler, recently passed away at the age of 70. This podcast is for you, Barry. I send my love and condolences to his friends and family and for anyone who has laid hands on his many amazing machines. Thanks for listening. The Pinball Tapes is an original concept written and edited by me, Zach Colligan. The original music in this episode, including the title track, The Octagon and the Saw, were written and played by my band, The Sea Thieves. You can listen and follow The Sea Thieves on Bandcamp, Apple Music, Tidal and Spotify. If you want to get in touch with corrections and comments, you can email me at thepinballtapes at gmail.com. I also can't leave you without shamelessly plugging my wife and I's cafe bar and event space called The Jade. If you like seeing some live music, having a party or simply enjoying an excellent coffee or cold beverage, while playing pinball of course, then come and visit us at 142 to 160 Flinders Street, Adelaide, South Australia. At the time of this recording, the mighty cyclone featured in this episode is on site in our cosy heritage front bar, just waiting for you to experience its kinetic magic. Keep an ear out for future episodes. If all goes to plan, I have more games to explore with you. Stay cool, Daddy-O. Zach signing out.